It is a privilege always and, and an honor to fill the pulpit here at Grace Bible Church. It, um, <clears throat> it, it, it is an honor for me. Um, I am a member of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, after you've said the name of our organization, you've pretty much described what we do. Uh, we are about Bible translation. We're about uh, going into languages in the world that do not have a written form. And we send trained linguists and Bible translators in to learn the language, create a written form for it, and do Bible translation. And as you can imagine, if you're going to find unwritten languages, you're probably going to have to get off the trail a little bit. Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> we are in a period of our work, and this is related to the title of my sermon tonight, which involves the last languages. Uh, we are at a place now in our work in Bible translation whereby we, we truly are looking at the final languages. And if you were thinking maybe that was one or two, that wouldn't be the case. We're looking at nearly 2,000 languages that uh, do not have a single word of Scripture in their language. That's 180 million people who do not have God's Word in uh, the language of their hearts. Uh, for, for Wycliffe Bible Translators, we've, we've become aware that there is a sense of urgency to complete the task. Our founder, William Cameron Townsend, charged us to, um, <clears throat> to complete the task, to translate the scripture into every language, and um, we, we are at that point now where it's within reach. In 1999, uh, as, as a mission, we agreed to set the year 2025 as our goal date for starting a translation in every language that's left that needs a translation. So you probably, if you look at Wycliffe website or literature, you'll see Vision 2025 very prominently displayed uh, on our, our literature. It is an ambitious goal. And what Vision 2020, uh, 2025 did for us as an organization, it ratcheted up the expediency of finishing the task. And in order to finish the task, we discovered that we had to use new methods. The old paradigm that I joined Wycliffe under, and many of you may be familiar with, is the uh, one translation team, one language paradigm. And it, uh, a lot of scripture has been translated with that paradigm. But what we've discovered is those translations that took from 20 to 30 years to complete, uh, 
<laughs> it, could, it could take us a long time using that paradigm, especially since recruitment is down in career missions. So just to have the personnel available to pull it off with that paradigm, it's obviously it could not happen. So in the last 10 years especially, in, in my organization, we have been talking about a reinvention of how we go about our work. And as you can imagine, any kind of transition is brutal. Uh, you get a bunch of missionaries together and you tell them, we're going to have to change the way we're doing things, guys. And uh, you really don't hear anything after the groan. Uh, but like, oh, man, that's an awesome idea. We're totally on board with that. Just tell us what to do. Uh, but it, it has been the last 10 years have been uh, challenging for our organization to, to start to work in language clusters, that uh, having a trained linguist translator doing the actual transla translation is becoming uh, a thing of the past. It's not unheard of now, but mostly what you're seeing is national Bible translation organizations being organized and trained and uh, Wycliffe members being consultants and uh, and helping these people with their own languages sounds like a, a great paradigm, and that really makes sense. It's fraught with a lot of problems. Uh, but as we move forward, it's a good problem to have that we need to partner. What I'd like to do tonight is uh, take you through a passage of Scripture uh, that I I would like to use to illustrate some of the challenges that we have um, ahead of us in the last languages <clears throat> between now and 2025. Uh, here's, uh, here's what we need to be thinking of, and here's what at least this member of Wycliffe Bible Translators thinks uh, we need to keep in mind. So if you would turn to Second Chronicles, I'm listening for those pages. It was it was uh, it was very heartening for this Wycliffe Bible translator uh, in the uh, service this morning when Brian was moving us through uh, the Word of God from Genesis through Revelation to hear the pages of Bibles turning in here. This is a little different, folks. Uh, what what you do here at um, at Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana, it did my heart good. So you're going to go to Second Chronicles, and that's, of course, in your Old Testament. And if you're in Kings, you're still going to keep going right. And we're looking at Second Chronicles 18. And this is a story uh, from the life of, uh, of two key players. Actually, there's three. There's two kings involved. One's name is Jehoshaphat, and he is a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And you'll see him listed in your, um, in your Bible help section of your scripture as a good king. 
He was uh, a godly king. He instituted and uh, carried out a lot of reforms to uh, free Judah from uh, idol worship. He, uh, he's, as you're going to see in the text, he enjoyed prosperity both materially and spiritually. The other uh, player that we have tonight is a guy named Ahab, and he is infamous. In, in Scripture, he has the distinction of being so especially evil that at the end of his life, uh, uh, Scripture records that he uh, exceeded the evil of Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern kingdom, who was uh, who led uh, an entire nation of ten tribes uh, from the worship of Yahweh into uh, idolatry. Uh, Ahab, his legacy was even greater evil than that. Uh, the third player that we're going to see tonight is a guy named Micaiah. You, you probably haven't heard of him a lot. He's different from the prophet uh, Micah that we're familiar with as one of the minor prophets. And thankfully, my daughter Anna is not here tonight to uh, hear me say minor prophets because that is her area of study. Uh, and especially Micah, and she would correct me and say, Daddy, there's nothing minor about those prophets. And I'd say, yes, I know, hon. She'd say, We're, we refer to them as the 12. So uh, she's not here, so this stays right here tonight, okay? Okay. Some of you I trust on this. Um, but he is a, uh, a prophet of the northern kingdom. Micah, the prophet that we're very familiar with, was a southern kingdom prophet. But uh, these people's lives uh, come together in an uh, incredible story in Scripture. And let me just, uh, let's just start reading here in chapter 18, Second uh, Chronicles. Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. Uh, some years later, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him uh, and urged him to attack Ramoth Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, and my people as your people. We will join you in the war. Now, on the surface, this you know, doesn't look just absolutely hideous. Uh, you peel back the layers, and you're going to see a ton of problems um, right after we find out that Jehoshaphat is... Uh, is is uh, rich and honorable, he has created an alliance with Ahab. That would be not a good move. The, his alliance, and you'll see the, the uh, same version of this in uh, 1 Kings 
says that he gave, that is Ahab gave his daughter to be married to Jehoshaphat's son. Jehoshaphat accepted this token of a military alliance, uh, but he placed in the palace in Jerusalem the, the seeds of, uh, of future Baal worship in that alliance. Now, Jehoshaphat uh, is a godly king. Had he consulted with the word of God before he left, to uh, make nice with Ahab, he would have realized that kings of Israel are not allowed to make military alliances with the surrounding nations. Now, he could have justified it and said, yeah, but these are our brothers. These are fellow Hebrews. Why not? Well, uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, by now is, uh, is a pagan nation. It, the only thing they have in common is uh, their their status under, uh, as we uh, learned about this morning, the Abrahamic covenant and certainly the Mosaic covenant. He has made a military alliance that he's not allowed to do. And, and strangely, he, uh, he has agreed to uh, go to war with uh, Ahab, without consulting God in any way. That's common. How does this apply to Bible translation moving forward? Well, moving forward, we're going to partner. It is inevitable. We have to. That's not a bad place to be. But moving forward in partnerships, we have to be discerning and wise. Just like for... uh, for Jehoshaphat, I mean, it looks pretty good. Uh, military alliance with your nearest neighbor. He's going to war against um, uh, against a neighbor enemy of Judah. Ramoth Gilead's about 40 miles from Jerusalem. He's got interests in this. Besides, what's wrong with extending an olive branch to your northern neighbor? I think that as we uh, partner in Bible translation, we are going to have to be especially careful that just because it makes sense and just because that partnership could really benefit the goal, we have to truly follow Scripture and not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, That passage... uh, in Second Corinthians, often used about marriage, its broader application is pretty obvious with the Church of God, and that is that uh, really we're, we're not here to antagonize non-Christians, but if we believe that we can partner with, um, with those who worship approximately the same God as us, we are setting ourselves up for... Uh, for grave consequences, I believe. Um, Certainly we do uh, act uh, respectfully to other religions. We have to, and it's good that we do. However, uh, in completing the task, we cannot sacrifice uh, the integrity of the Word of God 
for harmony and, <clears throat> uh, and partnerships that, in effect, allow the tail to wag the dog. Uh, sometimes it's going to be imperative that we walk away from the table without a deal rather than make the wrong deal. Story goes on. Verse 4, But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. He got there. I mean, that, uh, that's not bad. Better late than never. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, and asked them, Shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for, the, for God will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Not bad. He's late, but he's, uh, he's accurate. He does realize that these people are only telling Ahab what he wants to hear. Uh, the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, I love the word of God. Uh, but, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The, the king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once, dressed in their royal robes. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance to the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, had made iron horns and declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same. Uh, Attack Ramoth-Gilead and be victorious, he said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. Um, the, um, the, the prophets are, uh, have come out, there's 400 of them, uh, and they are uh, presenting a very, uh, well, a very welcome message. But check it out. They do it with this kind of nice audio-visual stuff. They've got horns and, uh, you know, <laughs> depicting just how it's going to come off. Um, <clears throat> the, the presentation is awesome. They've got numbers in their favor as well. In the last languages, we cannot make commitments and then pray like Jehoshaphat has done here. It's good that he prayed. It's good that he sought the Lord. But moving forward, you cannot, you, you, you can't move that way. The, the message that uh, these prophets are giving, it's, it's smooth, it's well prepared, and it, it is extremely palatable, 
and it's what the king wants to hear. Um, As we move forward, we cannot presume that just because uh, many are saying, no, that's the right way to do it, that that still does not create a mandate for how we do it. We need to consult the Word of God, and we need to initiate in prayer. We can't presume that what we're doing uh, is from the Lord just because the linguistics say it's good, our anthropology says it's good, our field methods say it's good, the politics say it's good, or even business practice says it's good. As we move forward, last languages, we have to be deeply invested in our relationship with the one who gave us the word that we hope to handle. Moving on with the story, verse 14. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack, be victorious, he answered, for they they will be given into your hand. And I probably missed all the inflection on that. I think there's just a little hint of sarcasm from the prophet. Um, I, as you're going to see from Ahab's response, he does realize it is ingenuine. Um, verse 15, the king said to him, I love this, uh, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, Okay. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each uh, one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven, standing on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will lure Ahab, king of Israel, into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another suggested that. Uh, Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will lure him. Uh, By what means, the Lord asked. I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in luring him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit into the mouths of these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. The, the, the message of the prophet is, uh, is quite clear. that Ahab's death awaits him if, if he engages in this war. Even in this, I see God's incredible mercy that 
he tells him ahead of time, he tells him specifically what will happen. As you'll see, Ahab disregards it, and curiously, Jehoshaphat does too. What's fascinating about this scripture and deserves much more attention than I'm giving it tonight is that we are given an unusual view of heaven, of a conversation in the throne room of heaven. And what does this mean for the last languages? I believe that one thing we have to keep in mind is that the word of God did not originate here. It originated in the throne room of heaven. That as we approach these last languages, as we have the previous, we need to be especially cognizant that this is a heavenly undertaking. There is a bigger story than just the stories that, that we missionaries offer during missions conferences. There is a story going on at the heavenly level that dwarfs what's happening here. This is significant. This is huge. But we must never forget that there is an agenda. There is a plan that comes forth from the sovereign throne of God that involves us. And that bigger story is his story. It's not Wycliffe Bible Translator's story. The story is his, and the word is his. There is a bigger reference point uh, in terms of the origin of the word of God and the impact of the word of God. We have to always remember it's more than words on paper. It's more than phonemes. It's more than grammar. This is the living word of God that we represent and we hold forth. And we do so in deference to him. And it may be at times at the expense of our sociolinguistic expertise. All right. The story moves forward, verse 23. Then Zedekiah, you remember him, he's still there, son of Canana, uh, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go? Um, yeah, which, which way did it go when he, uh, when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, you'll find out. On the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micaiah, send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, to Joash, the king's son, and say, This is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. 
final solemn message from the prophet. <clears throat> As we move forward, last languages. These are the ones that uh, are the hard ones, okay? Now, you talk to any Bible translator, don't worry, the previous ones, they were hard enough, all right? But these are tough. And it is our opportunity to end well, to complete the task um, in a way that gives honor and glory to the Lord God who gave us the word. We, and in doing so, I think we have to recognize, we have to accept that the word of God is offensive. The word of God is often politically incorrect. When people hear the word of God, it is the declaration that they are in desperate need of salvation. The uncompromised, literal word of God that we hold forth will bring opposition. It is inevitable. The challenge for us, then, is to accept that. We're not looking to be persecuted, but as, as we move forward with God's word and we translate it with the integrity of the word and in submission to the Holy Spirit and in reverence, I believe we finish the task. Uh, my wife's not here tonight, uh, or she would be going, you're done. It's over. Say the benediction. Give an altar call. <laughs> you know, but I know I'm supposed to end. Um, anyway, uh, Denise has heard me say this many times over the years. It is exciting to be alive at this time in church history. We have a great privilege that we are in the body of Christ in this time period. I believe that of all the endeavors that are very worthy that we can be involved in now in world missions, the issue of extending God's word to those who do not have a word of it yet is the great privilege of this era. But as we go about it, we need to go about it with a great sense of fear. The story ends, you can read the rest of it, uh, at your leisure, it's a great, great story. Ahab does, in fact, die in battle. Jehoshaphat insanely goes to battle with him, and you'll be impressed with how foolishly he actually goes into battle uh, with him. 
For Jehoshaphat, the one thing he lacks and he desperately needs is the fear of the Lord. The Lord spares him in this battle. The fear of the Lord uh, has been a concept that's largely uh, disregarded or downplayed. I believe that in the last languages that it should be our primary demeanor that we move forward in fear, not in fear of all the things that have always been obstacles to Bible translation. Illness, political unrest, um, just local opposition, national opposition, funding, all these things. I'm not talking about that. I believe that our primary demeanor needs to be fear, that we go forth with a sense of fear and awe of the one whose words we translate and that we would do them justice and it would scare us to death if we don't. Let's pray. Dear Savior, Lord God, I pray for my colleagues, my organization that I love. It's been a joy and a privilege for 26 years to serve in this great task. Lord God, I might, might not live to see the last languages completed, but Lord God, I pray that we would go forth with that sense of awe and fear and a sense of the glory that we represent in your word. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.